Welcome to Sermons from St. David's, a ministry of St. David's Episcopal Church in Southfield, Michigan. It's a chance for us to share a good word of challenge, inspiration, and hope as we walk the journey of faith together. You're welcome to join us on Sundays at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. for live in-person worship. You can also join our 10 a.m. Eucharist via Zoom. Just go to our website for the meeting ID and password at stdavidssf.org. Lord Jesus Christ, may the love with which you have loved us be in us and be with us. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Well, as you all now have, I'm sure, heard, uh, this week's mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas was not the first of the year by any stretch. The people who tabulate these things, gunviolencearchive.org, for example, say it was the 213th mass shooting of the year. A mass shooting meaning more than one person is killed or injured at the hands of one shooter. Yes, 213, and it's only May. And if this surprises you, it's because the only mass shootings that seem to make headlines these days have to do with children or have to do with more than 10 victims because they're just so many. We have also heard that there are about 1.2 guns for every person in the United States. And because only one of three Americans owns a gun, it means those who do own more than one. In fact, we own so many guns that we are the world's biggest gun owners for every hundred people. There are 120 guns in Canada, second place for every hundred people. There are 34 guns. So we have nearly four times as many guns as the next closest country. Of course, our problem is not gun ownership. It is gun usership. And unfortunately, Americans excel in that grim category as well. For every 100,000 people in our country, there are 3.4 gun murders, nearly six times more than second place Canada, which has 0.6 murders for every 100,000 people. As we all know, we live in a gun culture. It is long lived, it is as long lived as it, as it is deeply entrenched. And it is no surprise that if you're like me, you came to church this morning, Deeply sad, not just by those images and stories of fourth graders mercilessly gunned down in their classrooms, but by the wretched stalemate of our country in that we cannot seem to prevent ourselves from doing this and coming up with anything substantive to address this heinous, embarrassing, and most tragic of problems. How long, we ask. How many lives will have to be lost? How can a country that is well known for solving impossible problems be so utterly handcuffed when it comes to this one? And people of all political persuasions are asking this question, no matter what TV station or newspaper you read, we're all perplexed by this, by the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 40, how long? Many theories, many proposals are out when it comes to this topic. People on one side say, give guns to all the teachers, train them to be their own security force. Lower the bar so that everybody can carry a weapon openly and obviously. Too few weapons goes the reasoning, no, we need more. Another side says, take all the guns away and gun deaths will go down. Pointing out that the Second Amendment, as it was originally written, has morphed into something that would be totally unrecognizable by the Constitution's authors today. 
The rhetoric amplified by social media and partisan silos has left civil discourse in the dust and thus reasonable solutions totally out of the picture. So how do so many people strongly holding such varied opinions even begin to have a civilized conversation, especially on a topic that will more than likely necessitate compromise? I think we get some very good advice on where we might begin on what we might do from this morning's gospel. We are in John chapter 17. Uh, it's a unique portion of scripture. It's known as a high priestly prayer. And this is, uh, this is uh, in fact, you and me listening into the words of Jesus as he was praying to the Father. I don't know if the room was love or if uh, somebody was just eavesdropping at the door with a glass to their ear. But this is a very unique piece of scripture when we hear Jesus uh, praying intimately to the Father just days before he's going to be tortured and he's going to be killed. And one of the things that's really telling about this prayer is how Jesus is praying. In the precious moments of prayer before his great suffering, Jesus is doing something curious. He's praying for other people. Jesus is praying for other people. Now, imagine if you're in that situation or I'm in that situation. I, I might say, God, get me out of this mess. Where are you? What are you doing? But Jesus says, I'm going to pray for other people. And I don't know if I'd be doing that. But that's just how Jesus operates. Praying for others. Praying that his followers might do something that is at the heart of the reconciliation that God desires for the world. God does not desire bickering. God does not desire us to be sitting stalemated when faced with egregious problems of which gun safety is a huge one in our lives now. Jesus is praying that his followers might love God as God loves. And that means putting others first. It means thinking about them. It means respecting them. It means trying to see things from their own perspective. Now, I'm very conscious of the fact we have a lot of different people and a lot of different views on this subject. But what Jesus asks us to do is to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, to think about what other people are thinking, especially those on the other side of what you might be thinking. Jesus was very unique in asking us to pray for our enemies, to love our enemies. Not long ago, many people in our parish read a book by Celeste Headley. Do you remember reading the book, Speaking of Race? One with the yellow cover, we passed that around, we just read it this past year. She gave us advice on how to address another seemingly intractable problem in our, in our shared life, and that is of racial justice. And in that book, she told the story about an encounter that Celeste Headley had while awaiting an airport shuttle in a hotel lobby. Headley says she's sitting there on the couch, she's, she's waiting for the, for, for the shuttle to come, and she's reading a book on slavery, and it has a, a big bold title on it. And a man sits next to her and, 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 and says, why are you reading that book? The title, it looks so depressing. Well, Headley says, it, it is disturbing, I'll give you that. But sometimes it takes wading through a difficult past to come up with a sensible future. Well, says the man sitting next to her, I don't like those kind of books because they always paint plantation owners as monsters and not all of them were. Now, Celeste Headley, of course, is, is uh, African-American. And uh, she paused to gather her thoughts. She's like, should I lay into this guy? 
What should I do? She is a descendant of a slave and a slave owner. She sat there deciding on whether or not to continue with the conversation. Deciding she would go forward, though, with the conversation, she said, it sounds as if you don't think all slave owners were immoral. And I'm very interested in your comment. And I would love to continue our discussion, even though it may be hard to talk about such things. So I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. Can I get you one? He said, yes. And so off she went to get them both a cup of coffee. And she returned and they, they had their conversation for an additional 40 minutes while they waited for the shuttle, while they were on the shuttle, during which Headley learned that her conversation partner was a descendant from a large plantation owner. Indeed, Headley had spent most of the conversation listening, not judging, not debating, but judiciously sharing her thoughts when asked. And this is one of the big topics of her books, of her book, is when we get into these situations, how much are we listening? How much are we judiciously standing aside and letting the other person express their point of view? So at the conclusion of their talk, the man actually remarked, he said this, I learned a lot from our conversation here, and I promise you that I'm going to think about it. Another contentious issue, like gun safety, racial justice, how do we come together? How do we show the reconciliation and the reconciling power of Jesus? What Headley tried to do was to tamp down her opinion, fight back the temptation to be angry or argue, and genuinely consider her conversation partner as someone with value and dignity whose opinions are worthy of respect and therefore to be heard. As we all may suspect, this is no longer the norm in our country. Two longitudinal studies I read this week, one out of Brown, one out of Stanford, they looked at eight first world countries and found that America leads the way when it comes to polarization. Yes, over the last 40 years, our political divide has grown faster and larger than Canada, than Britain, than Australia, than Germany, and a couple of other countries. Many of us remember the day when the average American used to feel positive about their own party and kind of neutral about the opposite. However, today, says the study, People are positive about their own party, but downright negative about the opposing party. 1978, the average gap, they used points to measure this, the average gap between Democrat and Republican was 27 points. Today, 40 years later, that divergence is north of 46 points. I've spoken to some people who doubt that even another world war could unite this country. While there are all sorts of reasons for this growing divide from the rise of the internet to immigration rates to 24-hour cable TV, it raises, the question it raises for you and me folks this morning, how do we get along? Where does the break in the ice start? And how does this trend begin to reverse? And I'm gonna suggest two things for us this morning. Two things that I think are rooted in the gospel because the gospel is a place of hope. This country has seen so many intractable problems and we have made great progress in them. I think the gospel is a gospel of hope. Well, the first is that all social change begins on the granular level. It's one person making one decision at one moment of time that gets multiplied over and over to make a difference. We think that our comments don't matter. We often think our conversations don't matter. But because Celeste Headley chose to speak up in that one conversation in the hotel lobby and then on the, and the airport shuttle, we learned her story. We learned her story as tens of thousands of others did who bought her book. 
Mother Teresa famous, famously said this, if you want to bring happiness to the world, go home and love your family. If you want to bring happiness to the world, go home and love your family. So as we have conversations in the upcoming days and weeks, we're going to be talking about this for some time with families, with friends, with neighbors who have differing opinions on the giant task that we have of changing our culture into one where mass shootings become the exception and not the rule. Let us keep Jesus's ideals out front of loving our neighbors. We are in this sad and sorrowful state together. Ironically and sadly, it seems the only point of agreement we all share people of every political stripe, is that these senseless mass shootings need to end. But in brokering further agreement, it starts with a commitment to listening, which comes from a Christ-like posture of respecting others, a conviction rooted in God's love, and even for our enemy to be the focus of our love. The second thing I'd like to urge you to do is to sign up for an initiative that our bishop has helped start. You've probably read about it. It's been in your bulletins for a number of weeks, as it is today. It's called End Gun Violence Michigan, it's a new organization. Uh, it needs our help. Its aim is to pass sensible gun safety measures here in Michigan. Unfortunately, these measures have been stalled in the state house for years. So End Gun Violence Michigan is looking to put these issues actually on the ballot, bypassing the legislature and letting citizens cast their vote on such sensible laws as universal background checks. I put a sign-up sheet in back um, on the table in the narthex. If you'd like to be on their mailing list, I would be happy to put that information in the computer for you. Again, in your bulletins, migunsafety.org. Steve, we can probably put that in the chat box for our Zoom folk. Uh, the idea is that this folk, uh, is that this group is working to go around the legislature if the will of the people is to come up with some sensible gun legislation. There is an end gun violence Zoom meeting coming up on Tuesday. If you'd like to be a part of that, again, just sign up for it and I'll make sure you get a notification. And then next Saturday, June 4th, it's gonna be a big, big rally down near Belle Isle. Our bishop will be down there. There will be thousands of Episcopalians down there. And uh, you will find out about these events again by signing up at migunsafety.org. Christians are always called to pray, but I don't know about you, after something like this and something like Sandy Hook, when we go through the line, we wanna take action. And how can we take action that, 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 that we feel God is calling us to do? And so I invite you to, wherever you are in on this topic, to pray about your involvement and how you might take action. Let us not grow weary, though, friends, of the pace of change. I know it can be really devastating to say another <coughs> shooting. And how can we keep having hope? I tell you what, William Wilberforce in Parliament was one of many votes the first time they took a vote to end slavery in England. And 37 years later, he was one of the majority of votes. Folks, it just takes time, it takes determination, it takes hope. And the example of a fine Christian man as Wilber, Wilber, William Wilberforce stands before us. Let us not grow weary of the pace of change. This is a marathon, it's not a sprint. But let us grow encouraged by Jesus, who is reconciling all things to love and to Christ. He's our guide, and he will remind us that things can change, especially when we walk in God's way, which is the way of love. So go forth then, my friends. I know it's a sad day, it's a sad week, but we are following a Savior who has the world in his hands. Allow the sorrow and compassion that we all feel to drive and to direct us into the kind of society we want to live in, 
one that mirrors the shalom of God. We built this this culture. We can build another. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. And may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.